2: Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On.
0: We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg,
2: sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights.
0: Biden has promised
2: again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors?
4: The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically
2: for months. Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
0: United States passes a grim COVID-19 milestone, 500,000 deaths in the pandemic. This, as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Fed Chairman Jay Powell are wary of financial froth while they continue to push the stimulus. President Biden was out. Calling for more stimulus today as well. And a developing story happening tomorrow. The Senate Intelligence Committee will convene to investigate the solar wind breach. I have an exclusive interview with the chairman of that con- committee, Senator Mark Warner. A lot to get through. Let's begin tonight with the unfortunate big story a half a million Americans are now dead as a result of the novel coronavirus that first hit the U.S. shores just a little more than a year ago, a sad milestone that's left families mourning nationwide. U.S. US deaths passed the 500,000 mark earlier today, global deaths related to COVID-19, have surpassed 2.46 million, with the U.S. leading all countries with more than twice the number recorded by the next closest, Brazil. According to Bloomberg's virus tracker, hospitalizations and deaths have fallen since peaking in early January as treatments have improved and a rising number of Americans have gotten natural immunity from surviving the virus and more people are getting shots of the vaccines produced by either Moderna or Pfizer. It comes as the economy continues to lag behind, and U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell appear wary of signs of froth in financial markets, even as they press ahead with economic stimulus measures that are elevating the euphoria. For his part, President Joe Biden says that more help for small business owners who say large companies have so far received an unfair share of government assistance during the pandemic must come soon. I've got sound on this. Here he is.
5: We need Congress to pass my American rescue plan. It deals with the immediate crisis facing our small businesses. Now, critics say the plan is too big. Well, let me ask the rhetorical question. What would you have me cut?
2: We're
0: what going to die out. We're going to dive into the specifics of the timing of this as certain centrist Democrats, like Senators Joe Manchin, are now saying they would not be able to get on board with a $15 minimum wage, something that President Biden has suggested he would be willing to back off on. My colleague, Jonathan Farrow, spoke earlier today with the White House's chief economic advisor, Brian Deese, who said that inflation is a risk that bears watching. Here's the sound on that.
5: It's a risk that we're uh, keeping our eye on, and certainly uh, it's, it's something to consider. But if we look at the uh, you know, recent history over the last couple of decades, we've seen that um, the economy has the capability um, of running at stronger uh, paces, and we think that the tools exist to manage those risks uh, as we go forward.
0: Let's bring into this conversation Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Kevin Walling, a Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. Rick, I mean, there's the lay of the land. Uh, I was really fascinated all throughout the weekend and into today about the timing of when this $1.9 trillion stimulus will actually get over the finish line. And it's looking like it could come down to the Senate parliamentarian's ruling as to whether or not they're going to need additional tax taxes to to get revenue because of the minimum wage issue.
4: Rick Davis. Yeah, we know that minimum wage, that provision in this $1.9 trillion bill, was in trouble the minute Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, said, hey, I'm not for it. So all of a sudden, the advantage that the Democrats had in the Senate uh, to, to get that provision through uh, was nullified. And now the parliamentarian ruling on the Byrd rule that says, you know, after you have to be able to see tax revenue that meets the uh, government expenditures 10 years out uh, could bollocks it up, too. It sounds today like the White House is recognizing that, that, that Joe Biden is no longer going to put a lot of his own political capital to work on this. And... The reality is it'll if without it, it'll probably speed up the acceptance, which they're targeting for March fourteenth when some of these provisions and law run out and people are left without support. So just
0: to to come up for air and to, to translate how far we just dove into the weeds for folks listening, so if you have a, a stimulus bill that is going to cost the government money over the next decade, you have to add you have to add taxes in order to pay for it. It's called the bird rule. The bird rule. And so the Senate parliamentarian is going to be hearing arguments from Republicans and Democrats as to whether or not they're going to have to find additional revenue to pay for the increase in minimum wage. Now, with Manchin's comments, to kind of treat this as, you know, I hate to use the analogy, but a political football game, that means that Democrats cannot afford to lose one other vote, i.e. a, a Kirsten Cinema. but with Manchin gone... VP Harris could cast, will cast the tie-deciding vote. Kevin Walling, a Democratic strategist, that makes your caucus calculations in the Senate all the more intriguing. What are you hearing from your Democratic colleagues?
1: Yeah, it certainly does, Kevin. And to your point, I mean, I think we'd have to pick up a Republican vote, in fact, with a 50-50 split if we lose Manchin. It's lights out on the the provision of keeping the minimum wage increase in uh, if we lose him, and, and you're rightly... Uh, you know, uh, to point out that uh, Kirsten Cinema seems to be uh, on the fence, too, a Democrat from Arizona. Uh, it cleared, obviously, an important hurdle on the House side today, just a few hours ago before the House Budget Committee. It was a party line vote. No Republicans uh, joined the committee, Democrats, uh, in moving that bill forward through the reconciliation process. Uh, but again, uh, you know, you saw indications out of Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the Budget Committee, that he is cautiously optimistic, optimistic that the parliamentarian, will allow that to go forward, the, the minimum wage increase uh, in that bill. I read through the tea leaves when someone says cautiously optimistic, they're actually really not that optimistic that it'll happen. Uh, and I think to Rick's point is— Kev, you one. sound like a pessimist. You, <laughs> I know, right? Well, you know, I think I'm realist. In the Kev, I'm more, and of a, I'm more of a
0: I'm more of a glass-half-full kind of guy, not to interrupt, but I go ahead. I know you are.
1: I, I know you are. But, you know, I, I think that uh, Rick's point, uh, if the parliamentarian rules against uh, allowing that to move forward as part of that uh, larger package, uh, I think we'll see this clear uh, hurdles up a lot quicker on the Hill, at least, uh, in terms of moving the process along through, through budget re- reconciliation.
0: You know, we've got sound on this from uh, Farrow's great interview with Brian Deese, who is the uh, chief economic uh, advisor uh, for President Biden. And he was asked about the criticism that uh, both Rick Davis as well as Kevin Walling have alluded to. Here's the sound on that.
5: We size this based on the needs that we see to get shots in people's arms, to get the schools reopened, and to get relief to families and businesses out there. And as we look at this, we look at uh, the uh, estimates out there of uh, not only the output gap, but also the amount of pain we see in the labor market, 10 million people out of work still in this economy. We think that this is appropriately sized and, frankly, the right kind of uh, economic prescription to what is a unique and really precarious moment in our economy.
0: Earlier today, I I spoke with a staffer on the House Budget Committee, which, as Walling just alluded to, was uh, really going into the markup. And the staffer said, Kev, I can't talk to you right now. We're heading into a markup. The chairman's busy. Maybe you can get him this week. I don't know. But to that notion... Uh, Rick Davis, I mean, Chairman Yarmouth is actually not really the one in the middle of all this. It's Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the Senate. Budget Committee. It's Joe Manchin. It's Kirsten Cinema. It's John Tester. I mean, those are the players. uh, Even on the Republican side, Senator Mitt Romney, who are are really negotiating whether or not they would be willing to get on board with a a rising of the minimum wage. Walmart, for their part in the private sector, has already come out and said that they're planning to go about some type of gradual wage increase. But this minimum wage issue, at a time when it's really right now only seven dollars and twenty five cents is it's remarkable uh on on a host of different levels rick davis
4: yeah i think that it's interesting that you you raise this dynamic because we're setting a standard right i mean the government sometimes rules by fiat in other words they actually pass laws and tell you you got to do these things but a lot of time the government uh they lead the country especially on issues like this by setting a standard and and in in fact that standard could be like what they pay people as a minimum wage in the federal government and I think you are seeing in real time the government basically saying to the American public, the minimum wage that is set in the country is too low. We're having trouble getting it passed in Congress. But you should understand that we think as a federal government, as leaders of our country, we got to do better than this. And I think you will see more and more corporations taking the lead, taking that opening. Remember, they are looking at polling data that shows this bill with the minimum wage increase in it having – Three quarters of these uh, of the country support behind it, including a lot of Republicans, almost all the Independents, and almost all the Democrats. And of so course, it's 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 a part of this that that I think is very meaningful to companies. They want to play by the rules, whether they're express or implied.
0: You know, there's another big story to, to put a, a, a to move on and to pivot to a different topic, and that of course is uh, Merrick Garland. Uh, Kevin Walling, what are you hearing about Judge Garland uh, and and him being a pick to lead the Department of Justice?
1: Yeah, of course. uh, He was before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, today uh, under uh, the new chairman, uh, Dick Turbin of Illinois, taking the gavel. Uh, I'm hearing that, you know, he he made no mistakes. Uh, He he did no harm. And I think he'll actually pull some Republican support among the caucus, not just uh, before the committee, uh, but before uh, the full Senate. Interestingly enough, we've only seen seven confirmed cabinet uh, uh, nominees move forward in the Senate. Uh, that's the lowest we've ever seen at this point of, uh, in administration, half of what we saw during President Trump uh, and half of what we saw during President Obama by this point. Uh, so uh, clearly, they're, they're, we're, we're a bit lagging behind. Obviously, it's due in part to the Georgia runoff and the 50-50 uh, power sharing yep. agreement yep. that got delayed but between leadership and... Um, uh, but I think Merrick Garland should go yeah. through and while it uh, was good news for
0: and while it was good news for Merrick Garland, it was rough news for Neera Tandon, who uh, Biden nominated to lead the White House budget office as Republican Senator Mitt Romney came out to oppose Neera Tandon's nomination, which uh, further erodes her odds. Coming up an exclusive conversation with the Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia on the solar wind cyber hack. Why you should care about this? I'm Kevin Sarilli. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Could you see this on Bloomberg Quick Take? Quick Take on Bloomberg. John Lauerman and Jason Gale. The headline, it's on everyone's mind, including my beloved mother, who did get a vaccine, can a vaccinated person still spread the coronavirus? Nine vaccines have proved effective at protecting people from developing symptoms of COVID-19, the disease that can result from infection of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's not yet known definitively how well the inoculations prevent people from getting an asymptomatic infection or passing the virus on to others. Well, my mother came down to visit me for lunch over the weekend and we went to Milano, Cafe Milano in Georgetown. And this was literally all we talked about. Whether or not someone with a vaccine, minutium was actually at the next table over, about whether or not if you get the vaccine, you can spread it. So my colleagues on Bloomberg Quick Take put this in question and answer form. I really encourage everyone to go out and read it. And one of the questions um, about whether or not you can spread it. And it, it it's, do COVID vaccines have to prevent infection to stop transmission? Not necessarily. This is based on the science. It's a fascinating article, and it comes on the eve of a major hearing this week where vaccine makers are going to testify on Capitol Hill. Vaccine makers indicated that some of the big bottlenecks that have shadowed the U.S. immunization campaign could soon begin to ease in testimony submitted for a Capitol Hill hearing Tuesday, tomorrow. Moderna said that it has received positive feedback from U.S. regulators on a proposal to expand the number of doses of its COVID-19 vaccine in each vial while Pfizer said it expects its output to ramp up in coming weeks. And Johnson & Johnson, which could gain clearance for its one-shot vaccine as soon as this week, said that it will be ready to ship millions of doses. This according to Riley Griffin and Robert Langreth's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, offering a preview for tomorrow's uh, hearing uh, with the big pharma CEOs big pharma leaders uh, on Capitol Hill. Here to offer a preview of this, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Kevin Walling. Kevin, I mean, the, the, the criticism over the rollout of the vaccine has intensified as uh, the Biden administration uh, has has continued. Do you think they're going to be able to weather this or no?
1: I do. I mean, I, you, you saw a pretty positive uh, coronavirus briefing with Jeff Science and others uh, today. Obviously, President Biden uh, visited that Pfizer plant uh, last week, and you're seeing, you know, I think to a certain certain degree, competence in government. We're up to two million uh, vaccinations a day. About 44 million Americans have already been uh, vaccinated with at least one dose. Uh, so those numbers are all trending in the right direction. And then I think as the weeks progress, months progress, as we have more hearings, as we hear uh, more information in terms of not just what happened uh, over this past month with the Biden administration, the last year or so of the Trump administration. Um, we'll start to move towards accountability and understanding. But I think all trends are in the right direction, aside from the variants and some fears with that, of course, and how uh, these vaccines interact with these different variants. Uh, But I think all trend lines are positive. And you see the numbers reflective in public polling when it comes to who is best handling coronavirus and the COVID response. Uh, The administration is still getting pretty high remarks, uh, pretty high marks from Democrats of course but also a good number of Republicans and independents across it, uh, across Vic the country. Rick Davis,
0: I mean this is the question. You don't even have to be, you know, following the hearings on Capitol Hill to know this. It's the first question you ask anyone you see in your life. Did you get the vaccine? Where did you get the vaccine? Did you get the second shot? I mean, the fact that people don't know how to get this or when they're going to get it, what, you're you're the, you know, a very prominent political advisor have you seen anything like this because to Kevin's point it's not one politician whether it's Governor Cuomo whether it's Senator Ted Cruz it's it's a local it's a little bit of a local issue it's a national issue it's a big pharma
4: issue what are you how are you interpreting and analyzing this Kevin, I think you know so much of the public, and, and and I would be included in this, are analyzing the same way you and your mother were analyzing yeah. at lunch. At Milano, you know, like how's it affect me? And yeah. uh, and so I think that that one of the things that I am amazed by is considering the huge loss of life, and that really is the the canary in the mine shaft, right? If people stop dying, then it's a management issue, and so 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 much of the effort right now has to be on stemming the flow of of of. Of death related to coronavirus, and and I'm I'm amazed that there isn't a massive public affairs campaign that's been launched, you know, on television in mm-hmm. every state, with the federal government, with state government, with local governments, uh, to basically inform people on what they're doing to bring vaccines to the local area and to their state and 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 around nationally, because. The fear level, I think, is actually going up because now that vaccines are available, people are afraid they're missing out and they don't want to be the last person to die of coronavirus.
0: You know, I could not not agree with you more. I'm stunned because I was told I had reporting on this and that during the transition period that there were Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill who were going to work with the public affairs uh, federal uh, apparatus to push a public information campaign about Uh, information pertaining to vaccination distribution. I have not seen it. I have not seen it. We'll leave it there. Uh, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, stays with me. Kevin Walling, thank you so much for your time. Up next, chairman of the Intel Committee, Mark Warner. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg.
2: Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg one to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli.
0: My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Earlier today, I spoke to Virginia Senator Mark Warner. He is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is one of the most powerful committees in the, in the United States Senate. And I, I, I got a preview on the SolarWinds cyber hack hearing, which is tomorrow. And I asked him what he hopes to get out of the meeting. Take a listen to what he said. Well, Kevin,
3: we have held... One closed conversation with the um, leaders of the NSA and other government officials, but what i uh, i want to hold uh, what i want to get out of tomorrow was a couple of things one, even though this was a highly executed major foreign adversary, I want to make the point that That should not relieve any private enterprise or governmental enterprise, from that matter, from still not practicing good cyber hygiene, number one. Number two, because this was such an extensive breach, literally 18,000 SolarWind customers uh, possibly could have been affected. Now, the universe of those who were actually affected was much smaller, but I think the public needs to understand that this level of vulnerability, this level of attack into the supply chain we've not seen in the past. Third, I think we need to start a real policy debate uh, about the fact that we have no mandatory reporting requirements. Um, But for the fact that one of the people testifying tomorrow, uh, Kevin Mandia from FireEye, they came forward uh, because they'd been hacked into by this foreign adversary. If they had not come forward, uh, we might still be in the dark. So how do we put in place a reporting requirement that anonymizes the data but reports uh, so that w- we are particularly midstream attack not left in the dark and then finally who would that reporting entity be to i I think we're exploring a series of public private ideas is there a model for example that comes from the um, uh, the transportation realm the national transportation safety board that has experts uh, that comes uh, before you actually go into full liability questions, but there's a, an immediate team that can get on the ground mid-accident or mid-incident in the case of a cyber attack um, and make sure that we are able to stop this uh, in process. And then finally, you know, should there be a different level of standards when we are seeing an adversary attack literally through a patching process? I mean, is that the equivalent of, of uh, we all know, country spy on each other. We all know when war nations fight each other, but we've developed rules that say, well, if we're fighting each other, we have an agreement that we're not going to bomb a hospital. We're not going to bomb an ambulance with a Red Cross on it. Perhaps there should be some of those same similar, uh, both higher level of standard and greater level of protection uh, when we're sending out patches or other things that, as in the case of SolarWinds, um, you know, frankly, went out to all 18,000 customers and could have potentially made this incursion exponentially worse than it appears to be.
0: Mr. Chairman, these are big questions about the policy debate forward. Just, But just to, to put it in simple terms, what is the most concerning data that the hackers access from the espionage, and what can they learn from or do with this information? The most
3: concerning item to me is not the individual bits of information that they exfiltrated. The most concerning thing to me and for I think most of us should be Through this, through getting into a SolarWinds update that went to all 18,000 customers, our adversary could have potentially made this not simply an espionage efforts to exfiltrate certain information, but they could have turned this tool into a, frankly, a devastating approach that could have potentially shut down a number of these enterprises. Um, So we've got this continuum where we have traditional espionage and we have at the other end something like a denial of service, the not attack of a number of years ago, closer to an act of war, this tool was so uh, potentially powerful, it could have been crippling if the adversary had used it not simply to exfiltrate information, but to actually turn it into a type of, a, of denial of service.
0: You know, I got to follow up here, because when I was preparing for this interview and and researching this and talking to experts, I was struck by how how complicated and complex uh, this issue is and just how these hackers were so far advanced in what they did. But when I when you put it in simple terms here, if anyone's ever built a tree fort, there's a ladder to get up and then there's a trap door. Are you concerned, Mr. Chairman, that the hackers were actually uh, having cyber trap doors, so to speak, and laying the groundwork for a cyber attack that is even worse than the one with SolarWinds?
3: they had a tool that could could have potentially turned into the trapdoor analogy. It appears they didn't use it for that. It appears it was mostly used for exfiltration of specific information because the more you turn it into a trapdoor, the more chances you could then be discovered. So the adversary was making a very calculated decision um, about what to use this tool for. But the fact that it went through a... A basically software update that that didn't get caught uh, that basically dealt with uh, uh, in a sense the keys the very keys uh, that SolarWind wind had um, to protect their software really is a is a level of attack and a level of penetration that is much greater than anything we've seen we obviously have seen um, uh, well-known attacks over the last number of years we saw the sony hack we saw the hack by the chinese into our government files with office of personnel management we've seen recently what appears again to have been a chinese hack into equifax but these were giant sucking information out of individualized enterprises again closer to classic espionage although for malicious purposes the fact that this went fully into the supply chain the fact that this could have been even passed on from any enterprise into additional enterprises like a daisy chain effect really raises this attack to a different level of seriousness. Uh, the fact that the adversary didn 't use it for its, to create these these um, multiple trap doors back to your analogy. Uh, we were lucky, but it, it, but they got in without us seeing them. And they had the possibility of doing that. And one of the things that we've also found that's been in the public press already is that the adversary was able to generate this attack from domestic servers. In the past, we have some of the best assets, cyber assets in the world in, in the NSA and at Cyber Command. Uh, but again, our rules don't let those enterprises, for the most part, touch um, domestic assets. If the, if the bad guys can figure out, well, gosh, we can't bring our A-team if we can launch this attack from a domestic server, and then there is no mandatory requirement for those private companies, or for that matter, even the public enterprises, the public agencies, to actually report that attack to any, um, any responsible party, uh, we are extraordinarily vulnerable. And in this particular case, but for the forward leaning actions of <clears throat> the private company FireEye, Doing the right thing, we could have been, we could potentially be still in the dark. Thank goodness they leaned forward. You know, we, they came forward and and starting in December, we've started to try to to remedy this, but we're still, you know, three months in. While we've got a pretty good handle on how extensive this was, we don't have it all all 100% buttoned down.
0: Coming up, I asked Chairman Warner if we will ever know how Russia hacked into solar winds. That's next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. You know, I've been covering these cyber hacks for years, Equifax and the Chinese, SolarWinds and Russia, and that's where I pick up my interview with Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, and I asked him if we're ever going to know going to know how Russia hacked into SolarWinds. Roll tape.
3: I think we will uh, be able to discover that, and I think we will... Be able to remediate. It will take time, um, and it may require even full replacement of networks. It'll be very costly, both on the public side and the private side. Uh, but the the broader policy questions of yeah. how can we prevent them from getting in going forward, and then if they even if they do get in because of if a first tier adversary brings its A team against any private company. Um, you know, chances are they they may have some success. That doesn't mean the private company doesn't need to do good good cyber hygiene because that good cyber hygiene will help spot the bad guy once they're inside. But the fact that we have no mandatory reporting uh, regime in place and who that reporting even ought to be to that private industry and frankly even government would feel comfortable with are going to be some of the questions that we'll start getting at uh, tomorrow, but we by no means will finish.
0: Chairman Warner, I remember covering you on the Senate Banking Committee back uh, during the Target data breach, and it's, it's uh, really disheartening to see that these questions are still uh, around for, for the government to still answer. You actually wrote in a February 9th letter to intelligence leaders that, quote, the briefings we have received convey a disjointed and disorganized response to confronting the breach. What steps should the United States take immediately to strengthen its response?
3: I, I wrote that, and luckily the administration has appointed Ann Neuberger, who is now, in a sense, on the National Security Council responsibilities of cyber. She came out of NSA um, to be the lead person. So there is this quarterback. But the fact that we still have no, uh, this whole system is operating on voluntary cooperation uh, I don't think that can be the norm going forward. Our defenses have gotten better. We get better all the time. But the bad guys get better, too. And uh, there but for the grace of God, in many ways, if you're into at least 18,000 SolarWinds customers, and that only counts the SolarWinds vector, there may be other vectors where the bad guys came in uh, that may not be fully in the public domain yet. Uh, And the fact that this attack was so sophisticated that it could have been much more than just selecting specific information to exfiltrate, that it could have been, again, using your analogy, uh, Kevin, into this creation of a series of trapdoors and companies ac- across the whole supply chain, this ought to be a wake-up call. The, the past system of voluntary only, uh, that frankly moves too slowly, Uh, Cannot stand on a going-forward basis, and I look forward to working with the private sector and, for that matter, our partners in government. There's not even a requirement that government agencies have to fully report. This is not a. uh, This is not a system that's sustainable.
0: And a final question for you. Here we are in Washington, debating a $1.9 trillion stimulus, talks of even starting to negotiate infrastructure. There's some chatter. National security, digital infrastructure should be included in that. Uh, you, you mentioned at the start of this interview that uh, everyone expects for countries to, to participate and partake in some type of, of espionage uh, for, nat- for their own national security interests. We are the most developed country technologically on the planet. And yet, I'm struck by an analogy that I grew up with. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Does our capability, does our uh, strength in cyber, in digital infrastructure, in this situation, make us more vulnerable?
3: Kevin, it does. Uh, The fact that we are more reliant on information technology than many of our adversaries does make us more vulnerable. And in many ways, it's one of the reasons why we have been reluctant to punch back uh, and frankly gave Russia and China and other first-tier adversaries kind of a running field where they could uh, attack, uh, attack us with almost impunity. We've seen that. You know, we've done very little to respond to OPM. We've done very little to respond to Equifax. Uh, we still don't have high enough um, uh, responsibility standards for our private sector companies. So this is a how uh, the, you know, the living in a glass house analogy uh, makes some sense. Uh, But this is not going away. And this asymmetric type battle is one of the reasons why we need to create, I think, not only for ourselves, but with our our partners, our allies, something the last administration was loath to do. We need to create these level of international standards that say, if the bad guys, for example, if the bad guys come in and attack this broadly into supply chains, because other countries other than America were affected by solar winds, there needs to be Uh, potentially a stronger response, not just from us, but from the international community at large. Again, think about that uh, analogy I made that even though we have armed conflict, there is general rules of the road that says you don't bomb an ambulance with a Red Cross on it. You don't bomb a field hospital. Uh, Maybe not perfect analogy, but the analogy of that to um, uh, the patching process that goes into software, maybe something worth exploring, at least finding some commonality with our friends so that when bad guys do take these actions, we can punch back and, and uh, have a firm and forewarned response.
0: That was my interview with the Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Mark Warner. He's a Democrat from Virginia. Uh, Rick Davis is still with me, Bloomberg Politics uh, contributor. Rick, i got to be really candid here. I, I, unfortunately, I've been covering these data breaches uh, uh, for years now and they keep coming up and I don't think that they get the level of attention that they should. You know, SolarWinds the, the and I'm not one of those reporters, you know this Rick, from working with me. I I'm not one of those reporters to raise a false alarm. But Solar Wind, there is this was massive. This there's a lot of concern, as the chairman just pointed out, that they uh the hackers planted Uh, Cyber trap doors, as they're known, or cyber grenades to lay the foundation for a future attack. And because we are the most technologically advanced society, we are reliant upon this technology that, as the chairman just outlined, makes us have a huge target on our backs, Rick.
4: Yeah, Kevin, I thought your question directly to the senator on what's the most concerning aspect of this was really telling because he, mm-hmm. he, he really laid it on the line. He said, this is a new level of seriousness, and, and it's not just a one-off company attack. It attacked 18,000 companies, our entire supply chain in this area, and, and and to be honest with you, I was kind of flabbergasted that uh, the recommendations that, that he was talking about, uh, I, I think, seem tame based on the the kind of crisis, the kind of concern that you would have with that kind of an attack. I mean I, I, I agree with you I, I I haven't seen anything that raises to the level of a national emergency. I mean when when we had things like 9/11 we had a, a an entire country transition to see something say something and yet here we have an attack that is a different kind of attack but but as broad and we're not really sort of grasping the, the real nature of it uh, as a society. Rick
0: Davis, your, your former boss, uh, the late Senator John McCain, I mean, he was obviously the voice in, in conservative politics for decades uh, on, on foreign policy. What Chairman Warner outlined as it relates to the rules of war, and one of the first things you learn as a, as a geopolitical reporter is that countries act rationally in what they perceive to be their best interests. What I find striking as a reporter is that there, as Chairman Warner outlined, Rick, there aren't those rules of the road in cyber warfare. That's haunting.
4: Yeah, and I think some of that has been broken down even in other conventional warfare. You remember one of the things John McCain campaigned so heavily on is the torture that, that was uh, uh, endemic during the, the, the post uh, uh, 9-11 period with the U.S. government. And uh, and he said, you know, you start doing those things and you create a new low-level standard that other countries are going to to, to abide by. And and so I'm, I'm concerned with the notion that somehow if we set standards, anybody's going to adhere to them. Look, I mean, the same country, Russia, that looks like it perpetrated this attack on solar winds, you know, made... Regular use in Syria of chemical weapons against civilian populations in that country, they were not playing by the rules. And so I really wonder, I mean, I'm sure John McCain would, because he's done it in the past, take a very hard stand against countries that support this kind of activity.
0: It's just, it's really a... a A really fascinating issue. Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics uh, contributor and, of course, partner at Stonecourt Capital. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. And and again, folks, cybersecurity, uh, that SolarWinds panel tomorrow is going to be something that I will be paying a lot of attention to. February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating pivotal moments in U.S. black history each day. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young.
1: On this day in black history in 1989, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh
0: Prince win the very first rap Grammy for the this crossover hit. You parents just don't understand.
1: But the duo, also known as Jeff Towns and Will Smith, were not there to pick up their award. When it was decided that the Soul Rap Award would be announced during the non-televised portion of the Grammys, the hip-hop world boycotted. Smith at the
0: time called the idea of an afternoon award...
2: A slap in the face.
0: While there were some critics, supporters of the boycotts thought the stance helped the duo cement what would become decades of success in music, television, and film. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for us today. My name is Kevin Cirilli. Uh Tomorrow we've got Congressman Brian Stile, a Republican from Wisconsin, in Paul Ryan's old seat. That's tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.